Welcome to Crosstown Conversations. This is your host, Jean Nathan. You know, we work to bring you voices of our region as well as the nation and globe. Um, whether it is cultural, environmental, um, urban or political, we work to help you understand what people are talking about. So here goes. I have with me here today, somebody who's doing something that is very close to my heart and very important. Um, she's, she's addressing the issues that we have with curriculum. And I think we all recognize that this is a, a critical issue as we are in a totally new kind of economy from where we were just five years ago, 10 years ago. And so um, we, we've got to hunker down and get this done right, especially now with um, hopefully a lot of uh, input and, um, and um, resources from the federal government. So Chris Jones, welcome to Conversations, And um, please give me, um, uh, you know, a little more detail on, on who you are and uh, what you're doing and, and let's go right into the why. Sure. So uh, my name is Christina Jones. I am, um, I call myself a retired community, community development investment banker who uh, made a foray into education uh, and innovation in the education space here in New Orleans. Um, I run a new company called Cypher. 360, uh, which is a training and curriculum company that focuses on um, widening our scope of how we teach in our classrooms, particularly around culture, cultural relevance, um, making space for people who are from different backgrounds and different styles of learning to uh, engage in a way that's really great for them, um, and using literacy as the foundation to help us engage both diverse educators and diverse students in their academic trajectory. So I assume that you're primarily working within the New Orleans metro area? Yes, Cypher 360 will be launching its pilot this fall here in New Orleans. Uh, we're working on three different potential school partners to do that, uh, along with our partner brothers Empowered to Teach. Right, and I understand that, that you're kind of, I don't know if spinoff is the right word, but certainly you're um, hand in glove in a sense with, with that organization. Why don't you just give us a quick briefing on that organization so people understand the context? Sure, so I'm the co-founder of an organization that here was called Brothers Empowered to Teach. And the mission of Brothers Empowered to Teach was to incentivize and inspire more black men to consider education as a career by starting with them while they're in college, which is their most sort of vulnerable spot. Um, and give them an opportunity to see what it looks like for them to lead classrooms uh, and be the, uh, the uh, role models that we would like our students to see. So, um, you know, I, I'm particularly uh, interested because of my interest in the arts and the environment and urban issues um, in students who have um, maybe some creative or scientific instincts uh, having the opportunity to understand um, how to prepare for careers in that direction, because I think, and also to understand the opportunity. So a lot of parents are leery of the creative fields because they're worried that um, if, pe if people go into creative areas, they may not be able to make a good living. But um, we only have to look at the headlines sometimes about some of the artists who are making these mega dollars. And that's, of course, 
a slice of the whole marketplace. But um, even at, at, at the New Orleans level where a lot of our artists are not earning those big, big dollars, but they are earning money from what they work on and sell. And we could always be doing a better job of marketing them. But um, how, I, I'm, I'm very concerned about people understanding their opportunities and how they have to prepare for careers in the areas that they're interested in. Is that kind of part of your focus as well? I think that that is, I think part of our focus really is sort of a holistic approach to education, right? I think one of the things you talked about was these artists in the big headlines, their, their talents, while their talent, their creative talent drives them, right? They have to understand all the other parts of the work, right? They have to understand the math behind how they're getting paid. They have to understand, they have to be able to comprehend the contracts that are sent their way. They have to be able to critically think about whether an opportunity is the right thing for them. So what we're really trying to do is create an, uh, an environment where students can uh, expand their understanding and their thinking so that they can then through their own, um, through their own interests, uh, guide their learning so that they can learn about new things and different things. And we're using literacy to do that, right? So I think a lot of times in schools, we've sort of been reading the same great classics for a long time, you know, the great Gatsby for eighth graders, you know, um, the 84, um, you know, 1984 and other things. But I think when we are able to expand uh, what young people are um, reading and then guide them through sort of like how to dissect that um, and recognizing that literacy is not just about books and the written word, you know, you're talking about the creative arts, like literacy can be demonstrated through many things, including the performing arts, um, through music, um, through um, spoken word, through poetry. Um, and I think we're using all of those things to drive um, this sense of um, dismantling the things we learn and hear so that we can process them and say, what does that mean for me in my life? And I think that is how we open the door for children to think about careers, right? Um, I think our focus purposely is not specifically on careers at Cypher 360 because I think uh, one of the things that we have seen is that in some ways schools are hyper-focused on, on career, right? And so all of the other things that help you grow into an adult uh, and a successful one are sort of left to the wayside. We're focused on like, can you answer this test? Can you can you do this, this, this set of problems, but it doesn't connect to the larger world. Uh, and when we look at some of our best and brightest schools in the country that serve the same students that we serve, they're helping children grow from this little idea, you know, for instance, Macbeth, when it, in the beginning of the year, Macbeth might be weird, right? But at the end of the year, you can say Macbeth, you know, had these different things that happened in his life that pushed him to be who he was, right? Um, which is a very nuanced understanding. Um, and I think that we, that's where we want children to go is if you have that nuance and understanding, then you can drive yourself toward whatever career you're interested in, right? So that, actually, so um, that actually gives me an opening to the next question I have for you. And that is um, what drove you? What were the, uh, the incidents in your life or the development to points in your life that drove you in this direction of trying to work on a curriculum for uh, young people? So uh, when I moved to New Orleans in 2009, I was running the Louisiana Loan Fund and my focus is on affordable housing and community development. That's how I got here. Um, and as a part of that work for a national organization, I got asked to be on a, on a charter school board here, um, uh, which at the time was an independent charter school, Wilson Elementary in Broadmoor. Um, 
And what I learned by sort of having, being invited to all kinds of schools across the city of New Orleans that were looking to refinance or refurbish or um, rebuild a school, um, there were so many that I was like, whew, this is rough. Um, but I walked in this particular school and I was like, this is what school is supposed to feel like. Like these children are inquisitive. They're, they're driving some of their own learning. They're participating in gardening. They're doing all these different things. And I said to myself, if I could build a school, I would build a school like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so fast forward, Wilson um, stopped being an independent charter school. Um, but my business partner, Larry and I were approached by a woman from Memphis who was a former educator And she was like, you know, the children in New Orleans really need to see more diversity in their classroom. They particularly need to see more black men in leading classrooms. And so that's how I jumped into education. And I didn't think at the time that I really had a connection other than I wanted to help my friend think through this problem. But then I realized that really my motivation my whole time has been my grandfather who was an educator for a very long time. And my grandmother who was a school social worker and he once ran for school board in the city of Cleveland where he lived. And uh, his whole thing was, his mission was to ensure that every child had a path to success, whether that was college or something else. And that his job was to drive the spaces and places for them to be able to explore those thoughts. And so that's how I got to Brothers in Power to Teach. And so during our time at Brothers in Power to Teach, we learned that we could get black men to consider education as a career, that they actually were thinking about teachers, but they had been discouraged um, by folks who were like, oh, you're never gonna make any money in teaching. Uh, Some folks who were already teachers themselves. Um, And then they also um, were discouraged because of their own experience in school, right? They didn't, most of them had a negative experience with a lot of their teachers. There were very few who could even point to ever having a black male teacher, except for, you know, folks who grew up in New Orleans who could point to having lots of black male teachers over there over the time of the year before before Katrina um and so we got them in the classroom and then we found out that schools weren't ready for them right they um didn't know how to manage these different personalities because schools are highly um staffed by women these days right you know and so there's a difference in how folks communicate there's a difference in how men might interact with students um, and so a lot of times um, there was also some bias. So a lot of times men end up in the hallway being the disciplinarian, right? Black women in schools often end up in the hallway being the disciplinarian rather than leading a classroom. Um, and so we were like, well, we have to fix what's happening in schools so that men and women of color feel comfortable like they can um, have some impact on what children are learning. And we also have to do the same for children who are feeling disconnected. So what we learned was black men were going in schools, the students were really appreciating them, were building relationships, but oftentimes those black men were taken out of the classroom and put in the hallway. Um, Teachers were struggling to get to connect to the curriculum and teachers of color were struggling to feel like the curriculum was meeting the intellectual uh, curiosity of the students they were teaching. So this is how we get to the curriculum. We realize like you can't you can't tell people to teach and then they feel like they're going in a poison well because that's just, you know, turning on the water hose and letting the water run out of the bathtub, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is how we got to the curriculum. We said, you know, we, we want to make school environments more um, diverse, but we also want to connect it to what's really important, which is the academic growth of children. Um, and the way to do that is to prevent, per, is to present curriculum that 
teaches, speaks to, and feels connected to everyone, right? And then everyone has a voice. And we figured literacy is that way. Everybody likes, everybody has a movie they like. Everybody has a poem they like. Everybody has a book they like. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody has a performance they like, right? And so we figured that that is sort of like the connector for all of the pieces. So um, I, I think I want to go back to your grandparents for a minute because again, uh, as I do these interviews and I've now done hundreds uh, actually over the years of uh, um, BOK thousands, literally, uh, um, I, I, I hear that over and over again that there was somebody, whether it was a grandparent, a parent, a sibling, a neighbor, a teacher, um, someone uh, of faith that um, had a tremendous uh, impact on um, somebody. So um, I want you to be a little bit more specific about your grandparents and, and um, who they were and, 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 and what it was uh, from them that was so powerful for you. Uh, I would say my grandparents were the village leaders, right? So, you know, there's six of us grandchildren. Uh, my grandparents are born in the 1920s in the segregated South. Um, grew up in Kansas City, uh, Missouri. My grandfather lived next door to Charlie Parker. They were good friends growing up. Oh, um, <laughs> they went to middle school together. Um, and my grandfather was a family historian. So he often gave us a great historical context about like what's happening in the world. Like, you know, about his educational trajectory, about the educational trajectory of my great grandmother and why education, particularly to black folks back then was so important because it was like the thing no one can take from you, right? Um, and so that was sort of my grandfather's perspective was like, get your education and um, it can change your world. You can use it to do so many great things. And so he and his friends went off to college together. My grandfather was first generation college. My grandmother uh, was different. She actually was second because my great grandma, my great grandmother went to what is now called Rust College. But back then it was the normal school. So she was the first one in our family to go to college in the 1800s. Um, but, um, you know, they were running, they, they were well read. They, um, they believed in reading. So I'm a, I'm a voracious reader, which is part of the reason that literacy is important to me is because I'm a voracious reader. And I realize how much the world opens to you in the book, right. Or in a performance or reading a book, then watching the performance, listening to the music and making the connection between all three. I can't, and so, I can't um, go further without um, uh, just interjecting right there and asking you to uh, give me some examples of some of the books that you're reading right now that you know I find particularly pertinent to the time we're living in. So one of my favorite books is a book by Isabella Wilkerson called The Warmth of Other Suns. Um, the Warmth of Other Suns is about the Great Migration, and essentially it is my grandparents' story, right? Like they're and their friends, and so. I love that book because it brings to life so many and writing so vividly like the stories my grandfather tells me about, like navigating life in the 1940s. And, you know, uh, my grandparents actually got married down the block from me here in New Orleans. They used to be professors at Southern University. Mm -hmm. So uh, I feel another kindred connection to that. Um, But they also not only did they believe in education, but they believed in surrounding young people with um, resources and examples of folks who were doing amazing different things. So while the Cosby show may be controversial now, like when you look back at the Cosby show and you see the Cosbys bring their grandparents and their musicians and the artists, et cetera, my grandparents were the same way, right? We were exposed to all these different folks who were doing great things. They were musicians who worked for the federal government, who were the assistant postmaster general, who were professors, who 
And so um, I think that their story is what inspires the work for me now, you know, is that like, to me, a school is a village and the village should be full of people who have different experiences uh, and different perspectives that can help children see all the potential opportunities. And I think we have gotten to, um, we have gotten away from kind of what my grandparents experienced where when they were running the schools they were in um, and trying to influence that sort of like surrounding young people with like all kinds of different people, right? So faith leaders, oh. Mm-hmm. Etc. So, um, going forward, uh, as we ho- hopefully emerge from at least the crisis phase of this pandemic we've been in, um, h- how do you see uh, the educational initiatives that you're engaged in and others that are needed um, playing a role in in? I, 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 I just I think I have to call it a new normal. I mean, we're not going back. Um, there's a lot of changes that have emerged from this. I mean, of course, the balance between online and, rea- and real and live is one of the biggest um, changes that we're going to experience and can continue to experience. But um, what would you, how, do, how are you planning for the, the next months as we, um, not say May, June, July, August, but maybe in the fall and forward, um, what are, are your uh, sort of specific pl- plans for how you, uh, see what you're doing um, relating to the broader context of, of the relief and, 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 um, and the effort to try to right the ship, so to speak. In well, I, I think uh, what we see is that we are training potential teachers and existing teachers, right, at the same time to create a common framework. I think one of the things that we're doing is using both technology and in-person because people really miss in-person and there's things that you get from being in-person with one another. And so our training specifically looks at like ways that educators can practice some of the tools we're giving them in a virtual environment. So we're building a virtual classroom so folks can like, it's like a game, you're in a classroom, the children have these different scenarios and you're working out like, okay, as an educator, how do I, what would I do if this was my situation? If this was my situation, if I needed to change this reading, how would I, how would I make this connection? They're not getting it in the book. How else can I help make this connection to the material, right? Um, I think that that's one thing. I think the virtual classroom is really important. I think the other thing um, is that people need, you know, a lot of times we deliver these trainings. It's just like, you're talking to me and I'm sitting here listening to you, right? And I might ask you a couple of questions and ask you to respond in the chat, but it's a very old school way of educating, right? Um, And we know that one of the best ways to educate is really through the Socratic method, asking questions. Here's the question, right? Let's ponder this question and figure out like how we get to X, Y, and Z. And I think that that is one of the things that we did at Brothers in Power to Teach, which is the inspiration for the name for Cypher 360 is we got in these groups and we proposed a question, right? And then we talked through those questions and used the resources and the materials that might be available to us to like come away with an understanding, right? So I think that that's really important. I think changing the way teachers think about how they teach uh, particularly since we, um, we're going to need to like give children, children are going to need to come up to speed because I will be frank, I don't care what, whether the child was poor or well off, most children probably struggle in this online environment, right? Very few schools, in my opinion, were able to or had the resources to or chose to redesign the school day for online. They just try to pick up the school day and put it online and 
ask people to function. Uh, I'm pretty sure you and I wouldn't do well in eight hours of Zoom every day. So you can imagine that a six-year-old or nine-year-old is doing terribly, right? Um, so I think that that is the other thing that we're trying to change. I think um, the schools that have done it well, like Bricolage, where you know we have asynchronous and synchronous learning. So there's sometimes when we're together in a group and we're working on something together, but then you go off and here's your project. Here's the things that we want you to think about. Here are the things we want you to create. I think that that is something that we're learning is really valuable for young people too. They need to have the opportunity to like think and discover themselves. And I think that that is like a really crucial part of what we're doing. And I think last is that, you know, teachers need coaches, right? A lot of times we give professional development and we're like, here's these tools, go have at them, right? Um, but if we can create an environment where I can coach you virtually, and then I can also come and see you in your classroom, and you know, and you can take that same thing with that same feedback I gave you in the classroom and practice it in a virtual environment. And then you can come back and practice it in real and in virtual. I think that that's really where we're going, right? Um, I, I can't resist asking you because uh, this is such a challenge for all of us in the nonprofit universe. I'm assuming, I don't know whether your organization is for-profit or not-for-profit, it really doesn't matter. You're addressing certain mission, but um, funding. It's, it's always the hardest thing. Um, how have you been able to identify funding to, to build um, this program that you're putting out there, which I assume you want to grow substantially and replicate? And, and Yeah, yeah, it? yeah. So uh, thank God for Brothers Empowered to Teach and all of the hard work that uh, went into building that. And so uh, I'm fortunate that my co-founder, Larry, and I have created a collaboration so that he is um, helping me leverage the Brothers Empowered to Teach brand to get some startup capital for Cypher 360. Uh, I'm also getting ready to apply for a couple of different incubator fellowships. So Echoing Green and the Camelback Ventures, which is here in New Orleans. Um, and our partnership with Brothers Empowered to Teach, since we're helping build out the curriculum for their undergraduate fellows, um, some of their grants include curriculum development funds. And so we're working through a partnership for that money to pass through to us. Uh, but ultimately, the goal is for schools to pay us to develop professional development and deliver coaching. Uh, and my next plan is really to uh, delve into understanding impact investing and who's investing in impact and uh, in, 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 in impact investing because this is also a technology solution. So I consider this to be ed tech given that it will have a virtual classroom and some other virtual components. So I'm looking to figure out how to navigate through that because I've never, I've been an impact investor on the other side as a banker, um, but I don't, I, I've been out of that loop for a while. And so things have changed and I'm trying to figure that out too. Well, um, you knocked me out. Um, I, I, um, I think what you're doing is incredibly important. In fact, um, offline, I want to talk to you a little bit more about this because we have a program in my nonprofit called Creative Futures, where we try to introduce the idea of creative careers and how to achieve, how to prepare for them, what kind of training and school programs there are, uh, post-secondary education, and then uh, what kind of careers there are. And um, we're not educators. So I feel like this is something that uh, someone else can uh, maybe um, work on in a little bit more um, 
expeditiously. So I'd like to chat with you about that at, at another time. Um, listen, uh, Chris, I wish you all the luck in the world. I mean, it's uh, you're at the dawn of this, as so many of us are going to be at the dawn of whether it's recreating what we had before or, or starting anew, or, and there are so many people who have literally pivoted from one pursuit to another altogether, especially in the creative fields that's been happening. So um, what you're doing is very important. And, and I just want to reflect on, on an experience I had many years ago when I was a journalist and I um, gathered some uh, young men from uh, Wil uh, Milne Boys Home together to talk about why they were there and what was going on. And the one thing that I picked up as a theme was um, their bad experiences in school um, for one reason or another. Uh, and, and It only takes one good teacher. One good teacher can change the trajectory of a kid's life, but one bad one can and, also. And they're they're, they're thrown out on the street, but of, of course there yeah. was always the, all the issues with um, you know suspensions and and how the, the, the failure of the whole disciplinary paradigm. So mm -hmm. um, I really look forward to what you're doing. As, keep us posted. We'd like to I come will. back on again and, and uh, update us and, and let us know what's working and what you're learning. And um, I look forward to talk with, talking with you more. So thank you so much for your time and being on the show today. Thank, thank you. you very much. Have a great day. I think right now we are at a very important crossroads, a very important moment. No one can really say uh, when and if and how and so forth. But um, generally speaking, we're all anticipating uh, emerging from, uh, say, the crisis phase sometime before the end of the year, for sure. And um, hopefully more like the summer and the fall. We certainly are programming festivals back in action here in, in New Orleans coming up. And so um, hopefully that will materialize. Um, at the same time, of course, we have a new administration and they have made a very intentional commitment to uh, growing our economy, not just post COVID, but in general. And um, looking at it with a, through the um, equity lens and making sure that, in fact, we're paying attention to making sure that um, all levels of our workforce, of our communities are um, going to be able to progress and grow. So uh, we're very concerned, those of us who are engaged in one way or another in the creative sector, to make sure that um, the, our creatives, our culture bearers, our producers, our uh, supporters of the arts are um, going to benefit from this very, very important moment in our, um, you might say, national history. Uh, so this effort to make sure that the arts are included, so to speak, and the creative industries are included is, is critical timing in terms of the opportunities that may be coming forward. So, so I know that you're in the middle of this, um, working with the Americans for the Arts. You're our state captain and uh, um, I, I may not have said yet that you are Matt Henry, so let me make sure I've said that. Um, so give me a, um, give me a little bit of a, a sketch of what this um, looks like from the perspective of both the being in the middle of something called Arts Advocacy Week. So what we're doing right this minute, what is happening in states across the country and here, and then let's go beyond that. But let's start with that. Sure. Well, it is the uh, National Arts Action. Well, let me let me back up a little bit. Last week was technically the National Arts Action Summit. 
that's an event that takes place annually. Uh, Pre-COVID, of course, that took place in person in Washington, D.C., and was uh, condensed. You basically had a one-day summit and then one day where we met uh, as a group. Uh, when I say a group, usually about there's between five and 600 participants this year. And generally, there's upwards of 500 participants in person as well um, that go and we... Uh, we have in the summit. We uh, have lots of lots of training uh, as far as being um, informed on all aspects of things that uh, are affecting the creative sector, and uh, especially the uh, policy briefs, the issue briefs, and the asks that are being uh, formulated by the Americans for the Arts. So, um, as I stated, uh, that the summit was last week. And so this year, because we're, uh, of course, doing it virtually, uh, we have meetings set throughout the week where we uh, are meeting with the offices from uh, our different representatives and senators uh, from our state here in Louisiana. And there are actually 18 federal issue briefs that are part of the Congressional Arts Handbook that the Americans for the Arts puts together for us. It's a great document. Uh, it's, it's got an amazing amount of information. Uh, and what's very uh, pertinent to our conversation today is that uh, equity and access focus is very much integrated into each topic uh, this year in these uh, issue briefs. There are actually 18 issue briefs that are part of this package that we are pulling out parts of because we only get 20 to 30 minutes to meet with these uh, congressional offices. Um, generally, it's a, uh, a person that is a uh, policy advisor for the, uh, for the congressman. If we're lucky, we'll get that actual congressman, but that's all a time issue. Um, I won't go through all of them, but uh, um, just to highlight some of them, and then we can talk a little bit more if you want, a little bit more specifically about these areas. Uh, just to give you the audience an idea of some of the things that we are speaking with with our congressional leaders is uh, uh, topics include uh, COVID-19 recovery, uh, disaster response, which is uh, very relevant to our state this year, uh, the creative economy, of course, education, uh, federal, federal cultural agencies, juvenile justice, uh, our veterans, transportation, uh, and then, of course, also important right now, tax policy for individual artists, which has become much more uh, crucial uh, in this day and age for our artists. And we know that very well here in Louisiana. And uh, tax policy for the nonprofit sector as well. So that's not all 18, but that gives you a sense of the breadth of uh, the things we're uh, discussing with our congressional leaders. I, I think what's, what's um, really um... Uh, awesome and very striking about that list um, for anybody is to realize how dramatic and uh, comprehensive our initiatives at the moment are in, in at all levels, at the municipal level, at the state level, at the national level, um, and really within our own organizations and coalitions of organizations. And I think I mentioned to you that, you know, we certainly have developed a, a um, a collaboration of arts organizations in New Orleans that didn't exist pre-COVID. So COVID already has had a very dramatic effect on 
um, how we work together in, in the um, creative sector of the city. Uh, and I assume that that's one of the goals of your initiative uh, throughout all of those subject areas. Uh, absolutely, yeah, it, it's, it, it's well-documented and uh, there's actually some specific language. I don't have it in front of me because again, that document's got 150 pages in it. Uh, but when I was uh, perusing it again the other evening, uh, it specifically um, referred to the, um, to that, uh, to the aspect that we're talking about, that um, going forward, things are probably permanently changed, uh, but it has also created some new avenues for artists to, uh, to, to uh, share their work, to uh, benefit uh, from their work. And we think that's gonna be incorporated into, into our future post COVID, even when we are able to once again, you know, gather in, in numbers like we, like we think we remember we used to. <laughs> yeah, back in the day. So um, what would you say right now you feel of those different uh, areas that you're focusing on, which for you is, is a priority in, from the lens of Louisiana and what what we are most concerned about. I mean, you mentioned, you know, of course, disaster. Uh, uh, I suppose you might say readiness, and um, and also understanding what we've learned, um, lessons learned. We have a lot to offer other places from our experience, and everybody talks about our resilience. Um, I, I don't feel that we um, have done as much to uh, benefit from what we've learned in terms of sharing it with others and and um, viewing it as resources that we can build uh, from. So uh, I'm just curious to what's, what your perspective is on how we can offer um, lessons we've learned uh, for one on, on the disaster question, but also uh, our cultural legacy, how we work to keep our cultural legacy very much alive and in the presence. I often say the past is not past in, in Louisiana. It's a part of our everyday life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as far as disaster response, um, one of the things that's a little different this year is that we're, we're addressing uh, permanent reforms that were enacted during the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, specifically that affects self-employed uh, workers and sig single person non-employed businesses and uh, low employer businesses. Data shows that a third of all non-employer businesses have uh, people of uh, black, indigenous, and people of color owners. Uh, and that uh, I, I'm sure we're hopefully familiar, I guess, with that term or that acronym by now, BIPOC, but that's, uh, if, I'm, if I make reference to that, um, that's what we're talking about. But those um, owner non-employed businesses are growing at four times the national rate and 40% of our non-employer businesses are owned by women. So mm -hmm. there are some big differences uh, that we're seeing emerge and that we're able to take note of, and I think uh, gain some traction and 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 make that a part of uh, make that a part of our awareness going forward. How how is how are we organized at the state level? Who who is um, so to speak leading the charge? Who's been engaged? Um, I, I have to be honest and tell you that I I don't. Uh, no, maybe others were more aware of, of what was going on locally than I'm aware, but um, 
I don't I, I don't have a sense that there's a very broad constituency that's been engaged. So uh, tell me how this is operationally working from the standpoint of Louisiana and um, how you see it going forward. For sure. Uh, it, it has been a struggle over the last few years with um, with our state arts, I'll call it our state arts advocacy. Well, they are our state's arts arts ad, advocacy organizations. Sorry, those are, those are hard vowels to string together. Um, but uh, I'm very happy that, and we're very fortunate that recently there has been a, um, a resurgence in um, and the efforts and interest by our regional arts councils to help re-engage in uh, the organization that is the Louisiana Partnership for the Arts. So uh, I thought right, that was kind of um, dormant, but it's come back. Is that right? Yeah, we, we we never went away. We became pretty small, and we had uh, we we had a vacancy in the director position for for a while there. So it, it kind of uh, stagnated us a bit. Um, but there's been uh, again, like I said, there's been a. a a resurgence in the interest there and uh, a real uh, involvement now by our regional arts council so that we can hopefully get some grassroots traction across the state. And we, they are currently uh, involved uh, as far as our state's concerned in reaching out right now and talking to our, our state's uh, legislators about um, basically about the funding that's going to be in our in our budget upcoming um, for the arts because years and years ago the arts were zeroed out completely uh, of the state fund, the state budget um, fortunately uh, because uh, we had people in place uh, at the time uh, the lieutenant governor at the time and others uh, understood the uh, importance that um, the arts, you know, still be represented, and that that still have um, still have a place in the in, in the conversation. Uh, money was found and moved to keep the uh, Louisiana Division of the Arts in place, so that they are yeah, they are still functioning. Basically, right. And uh, with the help of money from tourism, because we are uh, intimately interconnected with tourism, tourism is arts and culture, and vice versa here in Louisiana. Um, so uh, fortunately, that uh, that has enabled the, the division of the arts to continue here, even though uh, that money there's still zero the, has been zero money in in the actual budget for the arts. Uh, so right now, on the state level, um, my uh, colleagues are very active in engaging with their re representatives in their districts to um, work towards putting that, getting that funding back in place. And uh, as I think we mentioned before and talked a little bit, we have a, we have a lobbyist uh, back on board that we had years ago that's very effective and has been a great champion in the past for the arts. So we're very encouraged by the opportunities that we think we have in front of us mm -hmm. to, um, to re-engage. So Matt, um, before I start worrying about running out of time, which we're not quite there yet, but I just wanna make sure um, one of the things I really wanted to focus on is um, how can those of us who are not directly involved with arts councils, uh, but who are very much um, active in the creative sector, how can we help? What can we do? Have, have you um, got some kind of a, um, 
a message that you can send out to us that we can uh, further distribute to ask people to make calls and you know, sometimes when these lobbying efforts get a little bit, um, you know, more organized, it, it, we get things that make it easy for us to kind of put our name to it and send it in, that kind of thing. Um, how, can, how can we, um, who care and want to support the effort of the art, uh, state art councils, what can we do? Well, um, actually, the National Organization Americans for the Arts are very good about compiling data uh, for each state as well. So, um, it's free to become a member uh, of the Arts Action Fund, which is an arm of the Americans for the Arts. And there's a lot of Louisiana specific information that they put out uh, that uh, you can have delivered right to your inbox that keeps you up to date on a lot of current issues. Um, I'm sorry to say at this very moment, we don't have a vehicle in place that uh, we hope to reinstate soon, which is uh, called Voter Voice which is a, a tool that you can use that uh, it's very easy when we, have a, we, when we have a topic that we really want our legislators to hear from, from their constituents about uh, that uh, you can get on there and the issue, the issue is already laid out for you. It, it's easy to find out who your representative is and the, the letters uh, composed for you to some degree. And yeah. then you can personalize it as you wish. Um, but lacking that, we can still uh, show some initiative on our own and, and pretty much uh, make an effort to uh, identify um, uh, some of the legislators from our own locality and, um, you know, say basically we care very much about making sure that um, uh, there's help, help coming through the new federal funding um, opportunities to help boost the uh, growth of our creative sector. We can certainly do something like that, no? Oh, yes, absolutely. That's a great point. Uh, my colleague and I, Devin, were just talking about that on a previous call we had with uh, with Senator uh, Kennedy's office. And um, uh, they were they actually remember they remember certain uh, they remember correspondence from their constituents and it makes all the difference in the world. So absolutely. Um, I highly encourage folks if if you have uh, that, that are passionate about this um, or that uh, like yourself, uh, understand the importance of the things we're talking about. Uh, reach out. Uh, that's what the, that's what those legislators are there for. They're there to work for us. They're there to answer to us. And it's most effective when they're hearing from their constituents. Um, can you give me a clue? Because I've been having a hard time getting my arms around this. I, I, I saw a story in, in the Advocate um, uh, a couple days ago, I guess, um, maybe maybe Sunday actually, uh, that talked about what the governor was was saying he saw the money going into. And, and uh, quite frankly, what I basically saw was a lot about infrastructure again, about hard, hard infrastructure as opposed to soft in infrastructure. And there's a lot of discussion about what is infrastructure and to make sure that um, soft infrastructure is, is viewed as a legitimate part of the um, goals, the funding goals of, of, of this um, new initiative. Uh, but all I heard about really was kind of highways and bridges and I'm not, not saying that's not important. I totally get it because I have to go over a couple of real old bridges just about every other day um, here in New Orleans between here and Baton Rouge is a bridge that's beautiful but it's like kind of mostly rust colored and it's kind of scares you. Um, so I, I recognize that's important, but um, 
do you have any sense of any commitment on the part of the existing state uh, plans for how this money is going to be spent that uh, is aimed at the cultural um, sector? You know what? I'm going to be completely honest, and I'm going to say I don't have a real good feel for that at this very moment, but that is exactly what we're trying to do with the Louisiana Partnership for the Arts with uh, what my colleagues are doing right now and trying to reach out to their individual representatives in their districts to uh, make sure that this, this is part of the discussion. As we know, those things like you talked about, transportation, agriculture, those things, that's going to catch the interest or that's going to be what most people or the majority of people in our state are, are, are going to are going to are going to see are going to be familiar with hearing the conversation about uh, but that's exactly what we need to do and what we're trying to do right now is uh, is wave that flag to make sure that uh, they realize that you know arts and culture are a huge huge economic driver in our state uh, it's not just something that we do for fun it's uh, it's it's a, a don't have the, I wish I had the number right in front of you, but it's, it's a staggering it's, amount. It's like $6 billion dollars that, uh, $6 billion that was, uh, uh, that came from the arts and creative sector and the gross domestic product of our state just last year. And that's so, direct, that's direct numbers, right? Not um, the, the multiplier. So if you no. add the multiplier, it, it, I don't, I don't think most people understand and realize how, big a role, how big a driver cultural work is in our economy. And especially as we look to phasing out of fossil fuels and into um, uh, um, renewable energy, and I know that this is a very dicey issue for us here in Louisiana where so many people have jobs um, in, yeah. in fossil fuel industries and petrochemical for that matter. Um, and things are going to change and we've got to get out in front of it. And, and the energy companies themselves seem to be more conscious of this in a way than um, maybe some of our state, even congressional legislators are. So um, I'm very concerned about this. I hope that you will, um, in your leadership role in the state, make sure that um, we get whatever information flow there is and, and uh, key moments that you need us to rally on the steps of the uh, Capitol or, you know, what do we have to do uh, to make sure that we don't miss this boat? That's kind of why I really wanted to talk to you. I don't want to miss this boat. Uh, completely understand. And you're absolutely right. This is, this is the time like no other and a, a crucial time. Uh, and I, I, I'm very optimistic that, um, uh, the efforts and the resurgence of uh, the efforts that uh, my colleagues are 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 um, putting out uh, with the specifically the Louisiana Partnership for the Arts right now. Um, we're going to keep working on trying to create more avenues to make it easier for the folks out there to make their voices heard, and so that we can combine these grassroots efforts. Uh, to make sure that uh, we're making a difference and that, uh, that, that we are being recognized as, as decisions are being made about the future. You know, I have one thing to share that um, came up in a meeting this morning. We have a group in New Orleans called the Creative Response Network. And this network came out of the beginning of COVID uh, when a number of organizations were looking at how to um, 
really do some refunding to smaller uh, organizations and, and, and directly to artists. And um, it grew to 120 organizations, um, which was really kind of startling. I mean, just in weeks, we came together as never before. And, but I know there's probably another 120 out there, truthfully, in, in our, just in our metro area. Um, and so an inventory of cultural, creative, um, in the broadest context, uh, it would seem would be a really important first step for us to be able to um, build our build our muscles a little bit. And so I wonder if that if you all are giving some thought to that, and and uh, if so, how can we help? Uh, that's that's uh, I'm glad you brought that up because that's that's another timely issue that uh, we're currently working right now on a program called Culturalist, and it's a it's a, it's 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 it. Sorry, it's an initiative, all these vowels. It's an initiative that uh, we're working in conjunction with the Louisiana Division of Arts on, but uh, our, regionally we're going to be able, and um, we're going to work to gather this master list uh, of cultural bearers, of artists, uh, and everybody, uh, everybody involved throughout our states so that uh, so that we have that network and that there is more exposure for everyone and there is a more interconnected network um, that's gonna be very accessible. So it's something that's in the works right now that's, uh, that uh, we're all getting behind. Right, uh, and the other thing that um, we, we did, we've done, you know, my organization is, uh, uh, my, my nonprofit organization, the Creative Alliance for New Orleans, we, we've been very focused from the beginning on trying to really be intersectional and work with the business and the public and the education communities because we did some research and we found that in those cities where they were able to, to move the needle on the budgeting for the arts from you know, uh, marginal to robust, they did it through coalitions that went beyond the arts. I went into the business community and again, education, public, civic, community, all of the um, these other, um, uh, and, and particularly business. That, those coalitions are how they were able to go from budgets, you know, under $10 million to, um, you know, upwards of, in one case, the, the one that was really shocking to me was St. Louis, Missouri, where um, they generate $40 million a year from a millage to uh, give free admittance to um, most uh, arts uh, institutions there. I don't know whether that's still the case, but when we were doing this research a few years ago, that was the case. So I'm, I'm, I'm wondering to what extent are you looking at that? And that's a whole other level. I mean, in addition to identifying who the various arts groups are and getting a handle on that, um, to what extent um, is your um, effort in including some kind of outreach to the other sectors? Uh, well, we've taken, that's, that's a great point. And um, we've done the same, I've done the same thing. And uh, I know my colleagues have done the same thing. And we've talked about how we can emulate other states and how they have uh, worked with these partnerships with the business community and other communities other than you know, just specifically the arts sector and how, how uh, beneficial and uh, how uh, effective that is mm -hmm. as opposed to uh, just trying to do it uh, quote unquote on our own. Um, I don't know that, uh, I don't know what else I can tell you about that right now. That's something that you see on the horizon. 
Yeah, it's something that we uh, right now are, are paying attention to. We see uh, great examples of that uh, in other states. It is unfortunate, like in Louisiana, in a lot of ways, um, you know, we're not always near there at the top of the list. And unfortunately, uh, as far as uh, the per capita uh, funding for the arts uh, that uh, Louisiana has compared to others yeah. is, 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 is way down there. That, that's I don't even something. want to use an adjective. It would be too depressing. But, um, <laughs> you know, I think that um, I, I do feel I'm, I'm, I'm heartened to hear that the partnership is, is, is um, back up and running, uh, that you have a strong lobbying initiative going on and that you guys are getting the councils together again. Um, I, I would urge you to um, st stay in touch. Um, I, I, I certainly, our, our radio program that we do and our research program that we do is uh, singular in, in, in New Orleans at any rate. We don't have a lot of media support for the arts right now. So we're trying to create it through this program. So let us know anytime you have a development that you really would like to be broadcast in a sense. Um, through either our newsletter or our radio show and through our organizations that are working together. Um, what you're doing is important work right now. And again, so timely. So uh, we, we want to support you in any way that we can. We may try, I, I'm going to, we didn't talk about that. We had a meeting today that was this kind of a subgroup, but I'm going to try to call attention to um, our CRN folks about look, seeing how we can maybe issue some kind of a letter of support that we as a group sign on uh, behalf of your initiative. So uh, send us uh, along anything that um, you feel would help us do the wording uh, that would uh, work uh, best for what you're trying to accomplish. And um, don't forget the governor's wife, right? She's, she's a big supporter of the arts. Yeah, former music teacher. We've met with, uh, with the first lady before and uh... Yeah, we, we, we've tried to and we, we plan on taking as much advantage of that uh, situation as we can uh, right. while, she's, while she's there. And uh, right. again, yes, thank you for that offer. And we were absolutely, we are, we are thrilled to have another, uh, another outlet and another uh, potential partner in, uh, in making our voices heard. Uh, so it's great to connect with you. Thank you so much for uh, having me on today. And, uh, for, and uh, for all you do down there. Likewise, for all you're doing, uh, thank you very much for it. It's very important. And that's the thing I wanted people to know that um, we are engaged here in, in trying to help move the needle and, and um, make sure that, again, we don't miss that boat. Um, Matt, all the luck in the world to you and um, do stay in touch. Send me that picture. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Will do. Take care. Right. Thank you. Thanks so much. Take care. Uh -huh. All right. Bye-bye. Did you know we also put out a newsletter? Uh, it goes out on Thursdays to give you a heads up on our show guests, um, but a lot more. We source local and global news. To receive it, you just have to send us an email asking to be added to our email list to crosstownconvo at gmail.com. That's crosstown, C-O-N-V-O, at gmail.com. Thank you to attorney Blake Jones for supporting this program. And that's it. Gene Nathan signing off for Crosstown Conversations, which is what people are talking about. <laughs>